You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. Stephen Mather is a London-based organizational psychologist by trade. He's a father, husband, and podcaster by night. A public speaker on the topic of cults, he and his daughter, media graduate Celine, seek to hack cults. On their popular podcast, Cult Hackers. Check out culthackers.com. You see, Stephen was born into the Jehovah's Witness religion in the United Kingdom, and not until his wife in the church became pregnant did he wonder if he'd like to bring his newborn into the fantastical belief system which promised so much and delivered so little. Today, I'm excited to have Stephen here to demystify the Jehovah's Witness religion for us after his 20-some years in the light. Hey, listeners, join me in welcoming Stephen Mather of Cult Hackers Podcast. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Vice versa. Great to have you. <laughs> well, your webs, uh, your podcast has been around a while. How long have you guys been there? Just over two years now. We huh? uh, we changed our name last year, so uh-huh. we started off as "What Should I Think About?" dot 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 question mark, mm-hmm. um, and we thought it was, was you know it's a bit too vague, really. Um, all the experts say you should be try to be as focused as possible. So we, we thought, you know, we talk about cults mostly and um, uh-huh. cult adjacent stuff, I would say. So we, we came up, well, my daughter, Celine, who is my co-host, came up with the name Cult Hackers. And I thought, yes, that's it. That's the one. So we're called Cult Hackers now. Been going for a couple of years, just over. Yeah. Love it. Pretty much <laughs> gives us a great idea of what you're doing on the show. Hacking hmm. through the information to get to the truth. Yeah, that's the attempt. And um, to really understand how cults work, you know, to to get into the code, if we can use that metaphor, you know, sort of really understand, get under the bonnet or under the hood and really understand what's going on there, um, both in terms of the organizations, the groups themselves, but also the psychology of, of individuals as well. Oh, well, that leads me to one of my questions that I wanted to get to, which is what led you in the direction of getting your master's in psychology after your stint in, you know, uh, Jehovah's mm-hmm. Witness? We'll get into the religion a little bit more later, but sure. how has the cult experience you had, if it did, how did it fuel your direction to get into psychology? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, to start with, so I left um, the organization about 25 years ago, really. So mm-hmm. it's it's quite a long journey. And um, right. I just concentrated on my career. So I didn't go straight into studying psychology. Um, I ended up becoming a, a sort of business improvement trainer, coach, manager, that sort of thing. So doing management training um, in industry. So nothing particularly exciting, but for me, it was a great opportunity and, and I did it. But I had always had an interest in an interest in how people think and why they think, partly, I'm sure, because of the way I was raised and, and the beliefs I'd had. So I was always fascinated by, you know, how do people believe this stuff? Why do people do what they do? Mm-hmm. Seemed to me a really important question. So I'd always had that in the back of my mind. Um, and then as I'm doing this job, 
of management training, working mm-hmm. with people, even a bit of behavioral change and health and safety, that sort of stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It occurred to me that why don't I study it more in a more academic fashion? I'd, I'd, I'd wanted to do a degree for quite a while and psychology fit well with my day job, really. So I did a, right. an undergraduate part-time degree mm-hmm. In the UK, we have something called the Open University, which is pretty well known around the world as a way for mature students to go back into education. So I did that. It took me six years to do my undergraduate degree, by mm-hmm. which time, um, oops, I'm 50 now. Um, and so I then mm-hmm. sort of wanted to do a bit more. And so decided to do a master's in organizational psychology. So that sat very nicely with my day job. But what was interesting, Frankie, was that I don't think I'd consciously realized that a big part of why I was interested in organizational psychology was, of course, you know, cults and religions and these things are, of course, organizations. In fact, we used to call it the organization. The organization says that. And I thought, well, this is a great way to kind of kill two birds with one stone in a way and study useful for work but also maybe it's going to give me some insight into how these sort of slightly more well very unorthodox organizations Mm. operate as well so that's kind of how I got into it um by the time I'd finished my master's I realized that that was that bit was the bit I was most interested in and the (laughs) boring management training stuff wasn't interested in that as much although it is what pays the bills and organizational psychology for those of us who don't quite understand it that deals with groups in business yeah it, it tends to be mostly uh, i suppose that the focus of my course certainly was was around commercial activities and businesses mm-hmm. charities as well actually um, okay. but the, the study of organizations really is is you know how how do these structures work you know you've got lots of individuals they all have a theoretically a common goal you recruit people you so this is why it's interesting for me you know what what is an organization well it's a it's a group that has a common goal they recruit mm-hmm. individuals there are rules there are right. behaviors practices there's yeah. normally ways of measuring performance. There's ways of checking right. to see whether you're doing it right. And all of these things are, of course, things that cults do as well. So these are, you know, the, the same sorts of things. It's just that cults do them in a very specific way. And, and, of course, charismatic leadership is very important if you're thinking about cultic groups. And that's that was a big module on the course. So, yeah, it tends to be focusing on the commercial world, but it wasn't very difficult to then start asking questions around, you know, more religious or cultic environments. What would you say is the perfect group having studied how groups work? Because it's one of those questions to me is I see so many groups, the structure of it allows corruption. So how, what's the perfect group? My God, how do we do good stuff in a group? Yeah, I mean, the, the the irony is that a lot of the things that you would say are good and desirable in mm-hmm. a group also may have a flip side, or at least if you take it to the extreme, can become dangerous. So one of the things that good organizations, if you like, and very effective organizations do is they have a very clear vision. And everybody in that 
group, everybody in that organization is is clearly aligned to that vision. So let's say or everybody's pulling in the same direction, let's say, to put mm-hmm. it in simple terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody's clear about what it is we want to achieve, both in the long term and on a day by day basis, you know, that the processes are very clear. So people know how they contribute to achieving those goals and uh, and that vision um both long term and short term medium term and so on um people feel that they belong people feel that they are contributing um they are valued within the organization they have right. voice um there are um opportunities for multiple people to have power within the organization so it's not all ah. coming from the top so i think a these are all good of power then is pretty yeah important. i think so uh-huh. um but you know some of the qualities like a clear goal and maybe even a charismatic uh leadership you know these things uh-huh. can be very effective for organizations but they can also be quite dangerous you know so you see sure. a lot of cults with a very charismatic very driven very sort of future focused mm. leadership so and the they, same structure for yeah. destruction is the one for creativity it can be you know i think i think there are some checks and balances and it's an area that i've mm. um explored a little bit with some other colleagues um around this you know how cultic groups even businesses can become quite culty if you like Definitely. in their practices I and mean, we've seen some examples of that you're listening to the Frankie Files. FrankieFilesPodcast.com. I was thinking of some big news items like Theranos, for instance. Um, Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Holmes, um, very charismatic leader, um, very clear vision, sort of led people off a cliff. Uh, WeWork is another example of businesses that have very cultic practices within them um, that lead people to ruin eventually. <laughs> so, mm. yeah, there are some risks associated, even with the good stuff, if you like. But, yeah. so, so it's complex right. picture, but... I have heard the, the I watched the documentary on WeWork mm. Mm. and that was quite a scam from cults. You know, what actually is it that makes something a cult? And it's easy. I think we've got into a situation now where any organization we don't like, and particularly in the <laughs> politics, we kind of point the finger and say, Oh, that's a cult, you know, and then mm. the fingers are pointed back at, at us to say, Oh no, you're, you're in a cult, you know? So it, it's become just a, a general term of abuse really. Um, I agree. You know, and, and so I'm, I'm careful not to just paint everything with the cult brush that I don't like, or that I think we, we'd sometimes talk about cultic um, behaviors or um, organizations that, that show cultic tendencies, let's say, right. um, these are slightly weaselly ways of describing it, I suppose, but it just means that it's not quite as it's not quite as black and white, maybe. But th- th- yeah. don't get me wrong, you know, there are some groups that I am more than happy to to call cults. Um, right. I'm sure we'll get on to some of those. <laughs> <laughs> no, 
No hesitation at some point. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah. but I can appreciate um, what you're saying here now. Recently, I've been looking more at the fact that churches are businesses. So getting into your church where you uh, participated for multiple years, Jehovah's mm. Witness, that is a business and an organization too. So I can see yeah. how this would be quite applicable. It's quite a large organization in the world. It started in the U.S. in Pennsylvania. I did a little mm. quick work on that. And yep. then it spread. Now, I know one of the teachings, sort of like where I grew up in a New Age religion, was to be in the world and not of it. Mm. We would wear yes. white everywhere as well um, as identifying clothing that some cults do, like red or mm cream color, white and black. And so we were in the uniform to remind us, you know, the church also of Jehovah's Witness does not believe in the Trinity, which I recently learned was a Christianity um, concoction. Could you get us into the belief system of Jehovah's mm. Witness and um, how many years you were there and, and what your knowledge of this is? Okay. Yeah. Um, so Jehovah's Witnesses, you're right. They, um, they begun in the sort of 19th century or, or sort of between the ninth, yeah, the 19th century, late 1800s, really, um, mm -hmm. by a gentleman called Charles Taze Russell. I think their sort of intellectual basis comes from, from the Millerites. So some of your listeners might, uh, you might know about the Millerites, but these were, this were this was a group that did yes. sort of calculations using the Bible mm -hmm. to try to work out when Jesus was going to come in kingdom power again, and mm -hmm. the end of the world was going to happen, and um, you know that there are differences of opinion about what would happen after that, but it was generally agreed amongst these groups that the end of the world was coming. Um, they set various dates for this based around calculations picked from the Bible. Mm -hmm. sort of combination of prophecy and numerology and um they sort of calculated various dates which came and went the millerites are famous famous for the great disappointment yeah. um which was the, the time when it you know it really didn't happen but they didn't die um mm -hmm. eventually they kind of fizzled out but they not before giving birth to other groups so jehovah's witnesses are kind of of that tradition really um so mm -hmm. They, the big one was 1914. They thought the end was going to come in 1914. Um, okay. Obviously, the end didn't come in 1914, but there was a world war. And so a kind of tricksy way of getting around that was, well, you know, okay, the end of the world didn't happen, but this we'll other thing it. happened. So let's oh kind of Lord. reinterpret that. So mm -hmm. that kind of, they hung around, I think, because of that clever way of um, mm. trying to make sense of a, a very clearly failed prophecy, actually. Um, so, yeah, that's the that's the roots of it. Around 1940s, 1950s, um, the organization takes a bit of a new turn with a new president called Rutherford. And he is the one who really coins the name Jehovah's Witnesses. Hmm. before then they were called bible students um hmm. he's a very different character to russell he seems from what most people say about him he was a pretty unpleasant fellow and uh but very good at politicking and managed to get himself in the position to lead this organization um hmm. and so that's kind of how they they started so they see themselves as 
really a re-emergence of first century Christianity in the mm-hmm. 20th century and now the 21st century, really. So I think that's that if you were to really try to pin, pin, you know, put a pin in something properly, that's what you would say. Okay. Um, so they think that the Bible is inspired of God. The 66 books that the Protestant churches tend to agree on as the inspired word of God is, is absolutely correct. You know, it's, it's, um, the inerrant word of God, um, and everything in it is true. Most of it is literally true. So they believe in the garden mm-hmm. of Eden, the creation, the floods, the tower of Babel, all that st- sort of mythic, mythical stuff. Right. Um, and they have interpretations of all these Bible prophecies in Daniel, Ezekiel, and all these other prophetic books, Revelation. Um, and they still believe that Armageddon is around the corner. It's going to happen at any time now. And mm-hmm. God is going to destroy the wickedness on the earth, basically destroy everybody that's not a Jehovah's Witness, essentially. They would argue with that. But that is that is clearly the message that you get yeah. if, you, uh, if you listen to it. So... Right. That's why Jehovah's Witnesses go around from door to door or have carts where they try to attract people to talk to them. And they have Bible studies and try to recruit is because they think that, you know, it's a life-saving work to try and bring people um, into becoming Jehovah's Witness before the end comes. And then after Armageddon, um, when God's destroyed everybody and all the billions of people are dead, um, then you get to enjoy a paradise earth with living forever in paradise on earth with uh-huh. animals that don't attack each other or you. So you get to play with tigers and pandas and all that sort of, sort of lovely stuff. Magical thinking. Yeah, it's lovely. Absolutely. So yeah, it's a very, oh, and also then sometime not far into the future, we have the general resurrection when all the dead people that have ever died come back to life on the earth. And you get to meet all these people in history um, that have ever been. I mean, this is the doctrine. This, this is, you know, is is absolutely uh, taught. It is what what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, mm-hmm. um, or are, are supposed to believe. I think yeah. most people will have doubts, wouldn't they, about these things? Um, but now, yeah, what's so your, this is we'll the, get into your timeline because I want. Mm, to, I really can't wait yeah, to yeah, get yeah. into this. But this is amazing. This is as outlandish as the new age religions mm. to me yeah yeah absolutely. absolutely there's a spaceship above when the end comes the hundred and forty four thousand you we don't have them all here but you <laughs> are the chosen and you'll be beamed up everyone else will be destroyed in fact they would say the california shelf will fall into the ocean and we'll be beamed up this so is, is that way. is that what your group would say mm-hmm Oh, that's really interesting. Morning <laughs> or something. Another <laughs> yeah, one yeah. too. Stupid, random, made up <laughs> science fiction. Um, but yes, I, I find yeah. I love hearing the mythology and the uh, belief systems of each religion and cult because it often is so similar. The and variations on a theme. Yeah, I, you mentioned the 144,000. So that there's a right. Um, a, a specific doctrine around that. So the the hundred forty four thousand are the 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 
faithful witnesses who are going to go to heaven. So for Jehovah's Witnesses, most people are going to live on the earth in paradise and live forever on the earth as humans. So not aging um just staying around the 20s you know basically living then living the millennia as a 20 odd year old um Mm -hmm. noodling around on the paradise earth you know that is that is the um uh the the hope but but there's this 144,000 that obviously you know is is a number in the bible and which is obviously where where your your ex guys got it from um but but here it's um these are the 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 leaders that are going to go from the earth and, and basically be kings and priests in heaven. That's um, right. I was a priest. As... Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and yeah. were you clergy at one point, I think? Um, well, we, Jehovah's Witnesses don't really call it clergy, so they don't really have a clergy mm-hmm. class as such. Um, although, again, that's that's debatable if you think about what a clergy means. I, I never made the dizzy heights of elder. So elder is kind of the leadership in the congregation. So I never became an elder. I was what's called a ministerial servant, uh-huh. which is, I guess, the closest thing is like a deacon, I suppose, in some respects, that the person that does all the, the legwork, really, the, the ministerial servants do all the the boring jobs. Um but I should say it's only open to men. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. But it's only open to men. So unless you are a man, you you can't do any of these things. You, you can't speak at the platform. You can't lead um, any of the activities. Um, you can't even handle the microphone. You're listening to The Frankie Files. FrankieFilesPodcast.com Uh, Many years ago, I began watching documentaries actually about, it was about uh, Michael Jackson. Mm, Michael Jackson, yeah. I heard in the news multiple sex scandals about pedophilia taking place in Jehovah's Witness and Mm. that they absolved. They also tried to recruit pedophiles from different prisons. Now, this could be propaganda or misinformation. Would you mind telling us what you know about this and how the church handled those stories when they came across the news yeah um i I, so my my take on it um is obviously based on my experience but my Mm -hmm. experience um ended directly with it 25 years ago so you know obviously I, i can only speak to what what i saw what people have told me and celine on the podcast and uh you know we've obviously seen and read other people's experiences um there's been various in inquiries into child sex abuse um both in the uk and australia in particular mm. um so we have heard about some of these things which some of them are horrific actually um my my personal um the way i see it is that it's not so much that and others others might disagree with me so i don't want to you know offend others by saying this is just my personal view but my view is that the organization isn't um it actually it they're very prudish when it comes to sex you know mm-hmm. they're very strict when it comes mm-hmm. to matters of of sexuality and so on mm-hmm. um you know it's um you, no sex puritanical. before marriage puritanical absolutely no sex okay. before marriage you're not mm-hmm. even allowed to masturbate um mm-hmm. that's a sin um you, yeah. you certainly adulteries 
wrong. Um, mm-hmm. You can't divorce unless um, the other party has committed fornication, which is generally adultery. Um, mm-hmm. So it's actually very puritanical. And so I don't personally see any any sign that it's okay or it's seen as okay. Well, the problem is, as I see it, and again, this is my personal opinion. So the problem, as I see it, is that they have systems and processes that, and also doctrinal approaches that create conditions within certain congregations in particular, where people are allowed or facilitated, let's say, to do things and then not be held accountable for them. Okay. So if you so let, let me put it this way, so I want to make sure I get this this clear so that people don't misunderstand me. If you have an organization that says essentially the man is like a little king of yeah. his family and his domain, mm-hmm. and that women really shouldn't take any lead in the congregation, they don't have any part to play in disciplining or in listening to people's problems in any sort of formal sense, yeah. then what you what you end up with is a system where you might have reports of certain types of abuse that go to the elders. Um, these are all going to be men, often middle-aged men, um, with no experience, no training in how to handle um, CSA matters at all. Or any other sorts of matters, to right. be honest. Yeah. <clears throat> um, Excuse me, that was a miscue uh, there. And I, I feel that, um, in a way, it's unfair for these these men to be put in this position. But that's that's the position they're put in. So they yeah. then have have to follow a set of procedures that the organisation has um, told them they need to follow. Okay. And depending on which territory you're in will depend on whether you straight away phone the authorities or whether you... So there have been cases whether where they've maybe disciplined a man internally within the congregation. Let's say they've been reproved or they've been disfellowshipped or something, but the authorities have not been informed. So one of the big... Um, the things that a lot of ex-witnesses and a lot of activists want mandatory reporting to be you know absolutely clear in the law and that is in some countries it's not in others as i understand it in the uk it's not that clear so you can get situations where um, the organization knows about certain cases and maybe they've dealt with it. Sometimes they deal with it or sometimes they say, well, this person is really repentant. So, you know, they can remain part of the congregation. Um, for me, they're mixing up sort of spiritual eldership with the need to report a crime or a report of a crime. Um, so that's that. They're the issues. It's more to do with the way that the organization is handling these matters as they arise. Um, so I think that's the, that's the big concern. Certainly for me, it should be very Mm -hmm. simple. If you hear of a case, if somebody reports a case, it's then reported to the police or the authorities, Mm -hmm. and then it's up to them to, to, to deal with that in terms of the law the elders then, of course, can can do whatever spiritual um, pastoring or discipline or whatever they think is required for the 
for the individual. And of course, they should be helping and looking after the person that's been attacked. Um, But unfortunately, that hasn't always happened historically. And I think all the evidence is that it's still not good enough. And the way that people are protected is not good enough within Jehovah's Witnesses. So I know it's a bit of a rambling answer, but I, I guess from my perspective, no, no, no. I, don't, I don't want to paint the picture that, oh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses think it's okay. Um, it's just not my experience. And then the people that I still know who are Jehovah's Witnesses, they would be appalled by the idea of that. Disclosed mm. in structure where, yeah. Yeah. where a church tries to handle everything. It's acting like there isn't police, acting like there yeah. isn't local and, you know, procedures that uh, a citizen is owed. I, I think that the the other thing that I think is important to remember about Jehovah's Witnesses is the very name tells you something. <laughs> so the, the idea is that you are uh, witnessing about Jehovah. So everything has to be in a good light. The idea that you would, that you would do anything that would put Jehovah's name in a bad light mm-hmm. um, is anathema to Jehovah's Witnesses. So there is a there is a real um, instinct to not get it out into the public, to not sure. let people know about it. And that's, so, again, so you know, we've seen it in other organizations, haven't we, Frank? You know, the, the, oh, the Catholic yeah. Church did this, trying to cover things up, trying to mm-hmm. move people along without it getting out. And mm-hmm. that's that's part of the psychology around this group is you know just don't don't let don't let the world know about this because it it reflects badly upon our god um Mm -hmm. so that's that's quite dangerous really i i think and that's that's what's happening excellent in my view sorry you mentioned about um recruiting or going into prisons or actively recruiting pedophiles um i i what i would say about that is jehovah's witnesses have, have always gone into prisons to try okay. to do their witnessing work so they will um they call it territory you know it's just like these are people that we wouldn't normally be able to contact um so they will go into prisons and other places to oh. do their witnessing work and mm-hmm. i think you know at times they find people willing to listen i mean you know they haven't got much else to do captive audience Um, exactly quite literally yeah you're listening to the frankie files frankiefilespodcast.com so um you know i i'm sure that um some of those inmates are guilty of, of crimes sexual crimes like that and other types of assault and so on. Um, so yes, uh, I'm sure that happens. And then of course you've got the question, how is that managed then if that person comes out? Yeah. Uh, and again, are the processes and systems robust enough to mm. handle that? And I, I don't know. Go and you live in a cult, let's say you're a pedophile, you get mm. recruited. Maybe they yeah. did or didn't disclose it, but then the yeah. person is supposed to report wherever they live to a certain amount of miles around them and yes. they wouldn't have to do that if they live in a compound yeah so i suppose the only the only compounds are uh the headquarters in various different countries um okay. and these are these are places where traditionally they do the printing of the magazines i guess mm-hmm. that's the still the case watchtower used to be the awake also general 
publications or the books and tracts and all yeah. that sort of stuff, which was the main way that the uh, the the faith was disseminated. Um, I think these days there's a lot okay. more emphasis on IT stuff and filming, so they have the broadcasts and so on. Right. Um, so so that's where you get compound. I mean, these are these are not necessarily gated. You know, people can leave them. So for most witnesses, their experience is living in the community in a house just like okay. everybody else. So you could mm-hmm. live next door to a Jehovah's Witness. Um, mm-hmm. But that being no part of the world bit is is still very much in force. So mm-hmm. you're living in the world but not being part of it very much right. rings a bell. We have to yeah. follow our regimen, our rituals yes. and our rules. Okay. Yeah. And and you wouldn't really have friends in the world, so you're very much discouraged. Mm-hmm. So you might say hello to your neighbour when you see them, but you wouldn't generally have much more to do with them. You know, you probably wouldn't go for for dinner with them or um, drinks. You know, drink. No, you wouldn't do that sort of thing. <laughs> no um, so you know, this is all a way to keep you separate. So although you are in the community, in yeah. a way, you're you're really not interacting with it in any sort of meaningful sense. I'm very familiar with that. Right. That's exactly what happened with us. Yeah. Same thing. Mm, sure. Lived lived nearby, but um, yeah. You know, pretty much your whole life is there. You go yeah. home to change, etc. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. let's get into your timeline. Mm. I'm always fascinated to hear about each survivor's details. And when did you go? Um, I know you have a family, so that had to happen at some point. Walk us through. Okay. It's a long story. Have you got time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> we have so much time. This is You're our first Jehovah's Witness guest on this show, and I'm putting cool. a lot of burden on you. I want to Yeah, know. I feel it. I feel the weight <laughs> of it. <laughs> Shake it off, my friend. Um, you can handle it. <laughs> okay, okay. I can do it. Um, yeah, So, so my story... I was a, a third generation Jehovah's Witness, so my parents and my grandparents were witnesses. I don't think I've ever spoken to a third generation. Mm, yeah. Thank you. Um, okay. So very much steeped in it. So I never had a, you know, I never had a choice. You don't, you don't get to choose, do you? You know, you just. You don't, um, you, they don't ask you in the delivery no. room? Would no. you like to be a Jehovah's Witness? No. And, and as you're, you know, toddling, they, they shove a, a Bible story book in your hand produced by the, the society, the, the, um, the organization. And, um, there begins your, you know, education as a Jehovah's witness. So it's always that the, the organization, in fact, the Bible talks about inculcating, uh, the word of God into children. And that is very much the, the mission that parents have. So, you know, your, you're going to meetings, you're having family Bible studies, you're, you're learning how to behave, what to do, what to think, how to think, uh, what you believe. And all of that is, is very much pumped into you, indoctrinated. Um, so that was my life growing up. I did go to state school. Jehovah's Witnesses don't have their own schools. Um, so you, you still go to state school or there are increasing numbers that do homeschooling, but I went to a state mm-hmm. school for a moment. Yeah, so I got to got to hear, you know, other points of view, which I think is very important actually, was very important for Absolutely. me. But still quite hard, you know, so I had to sit out of all the things that other kids would do like morning assembly, um mm-hmm. 
again, because we didn't celebrate Christmas and Christmas was seen as pagan and wrong, we couldn't mm -hmm. do anything around Christmas. So no making Christmas decorations or sending cards or making if, anything. If people knew that, that Jehovah's Witness saw Christmas as pagan, I think they would be totally surprised. It's they see it as part of false religion, you know, which yeah. everything is if you're not a Jehovah's Witness, you know. Right. But so, right. um, so yeah, they don't celebrate birthdays either. So none of that. Same. So Same. you don't have any of that that stuff at so school. So were you sitting aside in the cafeteria quite a lot? Yeah, quite in the library. It was for for me certainly my my first bit of school. Um, wow. And uh, you just get used to that. You have. I had some sort of school friends, but again, the friendship is only while you're in school. You don't really, you're not encouraged to have much association, mm -hmm. if any, after school. Understood. Um, Same. So that was that was growing up, and obviously, as a youngster, you're you're gradually starting to think about things and ask questions and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and I personally had started to have doubts when I was a sort of teenager. Okay. Um, but I push those doubts down do because you remember the point. Yeah, I, I do remember that. I don't remember the exact day, you know, when it all started to mm -hmm. to happen. But I do remember thinking about because I was really always interested in science and um, and scientific answers to things. So the the whole question of evolution to me, it just mm -hmm. seemed to make a lot of sense and. Mm -hmm there was a, an actual explanation of how it happened as opposed to, well, God did it, you know. Well, exactly. Nobody nobody actually even tries to explain that to you because, yeah. it, well, it's just God, isn't it? I don't know. So it's, like, it's the original black box, really. Um, so I, I found it really difficult and I kept, it kept bugging me. You know, I kept thinking, oh, and also things like um, we were told that God had created all the animals to to not kill each other you know so the idea of animals killing each other wasn't wasn't the way god intended and yet you'd see all these amazing animals with these these fantastic methods of hunting and claws and teeth and uh and then also animals that had amazing camouflage and and would uh yeah well, how has that all happened if god didn't create that then surely that means it must have evolved that bothered me but i i kept pushing that down and there was a lot of other things i mean the idea of, of armageddon we were told that armageddon was going to come i won't get into all the details of the calculations because that would blow um, your listeners mind we have covered it on our podcast so if you want to know you can listen to that armageddon obsessed okay. uh they had a way of calculating the generation that the end would come in. So they said that the generation that saw the beginning of 1914 would not pass away before the end of the world. So before Armageddon happened. So that means that people that saw 1914 would still be alive when the end came. Well, that was supposed to have happened in 1914. And as I was growing up, of course, those people getting older and older mm -hmm. um, and it was becoming more and more obvious that this wasn't flying, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was bothering me as well. So as I gradually got older into my teens, mm -hmm. I struggled with that. And but I was still pushing it all down. Yeah. A very scary place to be, as I'm sure many well, for those of you of who don't understand. Know what Stephen is saying mm -hmm. and who are listening, imagine your whole world as you knew it and is comfortable to you flipped upside down with one yep. little question one day. Mm -hmm. That's what we go through. Mm -hmm. No big deal. It's not just, 
and it's part of your identity. So it's not just your beliefs, it's who you are. You know, we used to have a song that we would sing, you know, we're Jehovah's Witnesses, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. I can even remember the tune. Um, And we'd all sing that. And um, so that was, you know, that was who we are. We speak out in fearlessness and um, this, Mm -hmm. this is, this is who we are. And this is who my, this is my identity. These are my politics. These are my philosophies. This is my way of thinking about the world. Yeah, it's, it's just just too daunting, really, to mm-hmm. even imagine leaving it. In this puritanical society, mm. having your doubts, and now you're becoming a man, and they have a path for you. As a man, there's a better path than if you're a woman. So as a man, I was able to think about, you know, okay, well, I can... I can become a ministerial servant. I can lead um, in some of the building projects. I can become an elder one day. Maybe I can become a traveling overseer, which is another rung up the ladder. Um, uh-huh. And so there's a kind of greasy pole that you see that at least, at least it gives you some thought of progressing through life. Right. Um, for a woman, I would argue that's not so much the case or not the case at all and we've spoken to many ex-Jehovah's Witness women on our podcast and you know they testify to this you don't have any of that really you can (laughs) give birth um or even even if you don't um have children but marry a good Jehovah's Witness man um preferably an elder and then you can maybe bask in a little bit of that glory you know it's it's really quite sad i think to be honest um absolutely and one of the reasons why i ultimately left which i'll I'll come back to that um well i don't think i knew any different frankie so i mean i've i've definitely learned a lot more about that since doing the podcast so i've been left 25 years now i've been doing the podcast with selling my daughter for two years um, and I think I've learned more about that that the the woman's experience as mm-hmm. a Jehovah's Witnesses as a Jehovah's Witness now over these last two years than I than I ever learned um, just by really talking to people, um, you know, you. reading people's biographies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, You're listening to the Frankie Files, FrankieFilesPodcast.com. So, yeah, so I was going through this, um, but I still couldn't imagine leaving. So Jehovah's Witnesses say they don't practice infant baptism. So they don't you don't have christening or anything like that. Um, But you do get baptized when you are you make a decision yourself that you want to dedicate your life to Jehovah and his organization. And so you then say, I want to get baptized. And so you get a full sort of baptism in a pool um and that happened to me at 16 uh and i remember still at that point having doubts but i grave doubts actually in fact i prayed to god the morning of the baptism to try and make me believe it and please make me believe it (laughs) because i really didn't but i wanted to um and anyway i pushed it down again got baptized yeah um and then you know my life sort of begun as a as a male jehovah's witness became a ministerial servant became a pioneer pioneers are that is open to women as well but is a is a a member of the congregation that spends in my day it was 90 hours a month 
actually on the ministry, so knocking on doors for 90 hours a month, so full-time, really. Wow. Um, knocking on doors. Yeah, not fun. Direct recruitment. Yeah, oh, yeah. And all the slamming of the doors. Lots of slamming and lots of people not answering the doors, really. So sure. lots sure. of pounding the streets, um, yeah. just going from one house to another. Mind-blowingly dull, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's truly it's truly sad, like, seeing people spend this amount of time and energy. Yeah. yeah. Because we're expendable in this type of culture, you know, this closed-in system. We're so expendable. Our time and our energy means nothing. It just has to be done. Get out there and do it. There can be no nothing that you can do that is is as valuable as mm-hmm. the preaching work. Um so yeah, it's and it is really about hours. This is a strange cultural thing around Jehovah's Witnesses. Um certainly when I was a member it was and I think it is still quite similar to this. It's really all about the time you're putting in. It's that that's the main your main KPI, key performance indicator. Yeah, but it's all about okay. the hours. Okay. So it's not so much about how many people you bring in um or how many Okay. So much about how many magazines you you sell or place or however you want to describe it. It's more about it's more really about how many hours you put in. That's what you're accountable for. So you can be just pounding the streets, going from one house to another, and so long as you're doing that, that's kind of that's good enough, you know. Um, so it's a strange it's a strange life, really. And you've been there twenty five years total at the church. So I left when I was around thirty. So you started. Yeah. When did you start your family? Um, yeah, in, in this in this timeline, I started to feel that I I wanted to um, get married. I, as a Jehovah's Witness, you you don't have any opportunity to date. Oh. So there is there is no dating. No court. Um, no. Well, the only courting is it, as soon as you start courting, then it, it really needs to be serious. So with a view to marriage. So you can't sort of casually go out with girls or boys and, um, you know, just get to know each other. And, uh, you know, there's certainly no sex before marriage, so no physical stuff, really. Um, so as soon as you start going out with somebody, there's a kind of clock tick in there in terms of, you know, at some sure. point you, you really need to be starting to think about getting married. Okay. So, um, and, um, I mean, I, ha- I happen to be heterosexual, um, so it wasn't a problem for me, but um, there is no allowance of any other types of sexuality in Jehovah's Witnesses. So if you happen to be gay, mm-hmm. then, you know, you're completely mm-hmm. stuffed. You know, what mm-hmm. what can you do other than um, either church. live a life of celibacy, leave, or get married um, mm-hmm. to someone of the opposite sex and mm-hmm. it'd be a disaster, which unfortunately does happen. Sure. Um, but um, for me, I, I really wanted to find a girlfriend and, you know, I was ready to get married. Um, so I, uh, long, long story short, I met Sarah who was, um, destined to be Mrs. Cult Hacker. Um, so <laughs> we, uh, we got together and you don't court for very long as Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, and so we, we went out with each other for a sort of year and a half and got married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in my sort of mid twenties. So Sarah was, she's a bit younger than me. So she was early twenties and um, still Jehovah's Witnesses got married at the Kingdom Hall 
It was all done, you know, properly as Jehovah's Witnesses see it. And um, yeah, that was, we got married. And uh, then within a few years, Celine came along, um, mm-hmm. our baby. So yeah, so that's, um, that's, so I started a family. We started a family as Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, I had a note off their website that says, we adhere to God's original standard of marriage as the union mm. of one man and one woman with sexual immorality being the only valid basis for divorce. Matthew 19, 4 dash nine. And it says, we're convinced that the wisdom found in the Bible helps families to succeed. All men um, are the head of their households, you know? So um, as a man, I would be expected to, to be the head of the household, to to be the leader. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, a a good head would, would listen to his wife's opinion and um, you'd think all of that, Uh, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's not, it's not an equitable, arrangement um the man is the one who ultimately makes the decisions um and i have to say that although i've never been shy about taking leadership roles um i found that actually to be quite a heavy burden i I much prefer the idea of, of working together as a partnership right um and i yeah so that that was something that it's almost I, I, like a reverse I mean, the catalyst really was Celine. So it was our daughter. Um, Mm -hmm. So the first thing I worried about was when Sarah was uh, carrying Celine. Um, You may or may not know that Jehovah's Witnesses don't, under any circumstances, accept blood transfusions. Um, So a blood transfusion is seen as Not even from another Jehovah's Witness? No, 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 not at all. Okay, go on. Not even your own blood stored. So you you can't even do that. So um, Mm. Jehovah's Witnesses have a very strict interpretation of this rule that says you shouldn't or you should abstain from blood, um, which was a a sort of dietary restriction that was repeated in, in the New Testament, but Jehovah's Witnesses consider that to apply to a medical procedure as well. So, so my worry was that, you know, Sarah, obviously giving birth, there are sometimes complications. It's rare, but on occasions, sure. um, you know, women need a blood transfusion. And there are cases where young Jehovah's Witness women have died um, literally giving birth, you know, and they've got, there's a baby there now mm-hmm. that they're, that the dad has got a, raise on their own and that i just yeah and i couldn't imagine that i was worried about that happening you're listening to the frankie files frankiefilespodcast.com jehovah's witnesses call it the um which more correctly really call it the hebrew scriptures i suppose the the hebrew Mm -hmm. bible in that in that uh there's a couple of places where God gives dietary restri- restrictions, including after the flood, when apparently he lifts the restriction on eating animals. Although, you know, you think that would be a bad time to start eating animals, given that you've only mm-hmm. got a few of each kind that have mm-hmm. managed to survive outside <laughs> outside the ark. Mm-hmm. But no, that's a good time, God thinks, to, um, to lift the restriction of eating animals. Um, yeah. But anyway, there is a, a, a an exception which says you can't eat the blood. So you, you must um, kill an animal 
um, mm-hmm. and bleed it essentially, like I mm-hmm. suppose you know, mm-hmm. like Jewish practice and like halal practice, right. and the Muslims practice. Um, and then you can eat meat, but you can't eat the blood. I think it's the Apostle Paul in Acts who who then repeats what the restrictions are, and he there is a a bit of text that says um, to abstain from blood, and that's that's basic the scripture that is used. Um, of course, you know, there wasn't any blood transfusions in those days. There were no medical procedures like that. And anyway, he was talking about mm. restrictions that were to be carried over from the old Jewish law covenant and which yeah. ones should Christians now follow. So it wasn't really mm. about that. But anyway, that's that's what Jehovah's Witnesses say. And so that's they, they, something they that obviously concerned you. Mm, yeah, and that worried me a lot. Fortunately, no. Um, it didn't so we didn't have that but that did that did bother me a lot but the main thing frankie was my daughter holding my daughter in my arms as a baby you know only a few hours old thinking to myself what do i tell her what do i teach her because i i felt my job as a dad a big part of it is to tell her the truth Mm -hmm. (laughs) because she's gonna ask questions isn't she you didn't um, have the heart to I, lie to her for a generation? I, I didn't want to lie to her. I didn't want mm-hmm. to tell her stuff that at least at this point I wasn't sure was true. So I gave mm-hmm. myself an opportunity to say, right, okay, well, I don't know it's not true for sure, but I also don't know it is true for sure. So what I really need to do is spend some time getting rid of these doubts so I need to give myself that space and really answer this question once and for all. A question, these questions that have been rattling around my brain for a decade or more, I really needed to get to grips with that and find out for myself. And then I can teach my daughter what I consider to be true. Um, and that's what I did. And did it reconcile? Yeah, within about a week, I realized it wasn't true. Okay. <laughs> because it's ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know, and this is the thing that I guess, and, and sometimes the simple things are most profound, you know, and mm-hmm. if you happen to be a Jehovah's Witness listening to this podcast, then ask yourself that question Is it really true? Jehovah's Witnesses have a shorthand for being a Jehovah's Witness. They call it the truth. Are you in the truth? Is he in the truth? She's in the truth. She's fallen out of the truth. He's come into the truth. This is just a way of talking that is a sort of loaded language, as cults use. But I would ask any Jehovah's Witness, deep down, think about the things you're taught. Think about the things you've been taught over the years. Is it really true? You know, and for me, it took me very uh, a, a relatively short amount of time to realise it just wasn't true. I didn't believe it, um, and yeah, that's that's when I I started to uh, to fade. That mm. moment for each of us, especially yeah. the born in, you're so strong for having lived through that moment and also rising to that voice inside you that said it's time to mm. to break these, you know basically chains of thought mm. chains of yes mm. i call it a wall of words often there are no chains like with me mm. and there is beliefs keeping us in locked in this fear what did you have to reconcile next you're trying to get the wife to come with 
Yeah, so so I what I didn't want to do was um was try and sort of force her to leave. Um don't forget by this time I was still I was still trying to reconcile in my own mind this big thing that that started to occur to me that it wasn't true but i i wasn't ready yet to to try and convince other people that it's not true um and i was i also worried about and i did this for years afterwards actually even when people talk to me at work about religion and things like that i would always say i don't i don't want to talk about it you know um because i didn't want my lack of faith to ruin their faith you know, yeah. I, 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 so I didn't want to make Celine, uh, make Sarah feel like she, she had to do her own investigations. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to mm-hmm. sort of, so I said to her, look, you know, I, I don't mind, um, helping and I'll, I'll take you to the meetings and I'll, you know, look after Celine and all that. And I even went, went to the meetings for a while, even though I, I wasn't a Jehovah's Witness anymore in my own mind, mm-hmm. but I, I still went to help with, with the baby. Um, but no, after about a year, she started to do her own thinking. And, and she tells me now that she never really believed it, actually, which is quite interesting. Sarah's story is very different to mine. And this is the thing that, you know, I'm sure you've found as you've talked to people and we mm-hmm. certainly found is the the different experiences that people have and the different ways that people experience their religious beliefs or their cultic beliefs. But I mean, Sarah now says, you know, even as a, a youngster, she'd um, do things that she wasn't supposed to do. You know, she'd buy a Christmas card for friends at work, but she'd try and keep it quiet. So her mum didn't find out. I would never have done that, you know, so I, I was much more in it than she was. So it took her a little while to sort of um, make her own mind up about what she wanted to do. But no, she left and it was definitely her Decision. Was she also a third generation or, or a second generation? No, actually, yeah, she's third third generation. Got yeah, it. same, same, really. Yeah, different yeah. families, perhaps, or uh, just awareness. It could really vary. Absolutely. So different people have different experiences. For for her, I don't think she found grappling with doubts and all that. She didn't find that as difficult for her because she she'd come to a way of just being that was well. I don't really believe it, but I know what I need to do in order to. Um, you know, not get into trouble. Um, whereas for me, it was very different sort of experience. But you know, everybody has their own difficulties, and she's had others that are incredibly difficult. But, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, so so we eventually we uh, we were both uh, now non witnesses, which was great because obviously now with Celine, there was no uh, no discussion about what we taught her as being true. And we weren't going to indoctrinate her with the, uh-huh. uh, the, the doctrines and we weren't going to restrict her. Amazing. And uh, coming back to my point about women, you know, as a woman growing up in this organization, she would have been very restricted in what she could do, but, yeah. but fortunately, um, yeah. she's been able to lead her own life. You know, she's been to university. Mm-hmm. She's, She's got a boyfriend. She lives with a boyfriend. She has a life where she's got choices, which is right. probably the the thing I'm most proud of between yes. us. Really, well, congratulations on that. Thank you. It's something to be proud of. That's a wonderful decision. Uh, again, I applaud you. Now, waking up isn't that pleasant, mm. but clearly it benefited the person in your life. That's really great. But now getting back 
to a question for you about apocalypticism in Jehovah's Witness, Mm. that fear, how was that when you left? How was your fear level? This is something that I think is different to others. Um, But because, because I, when I left, I knew after a, I said a week, I was probably exaggerating a few weeks, a few months of thinking, studying, really, Mm -hmm. you know, really getting my head around it all. By the time I'd left, I, I absolutely knew it wasn't true. So I had no fear of Armageddon by the time I left. I had loads of fear when I was in, when I was a Jehovah's Witness. I was Fear was, was the, the most common emotion, certainly growing up as a child. You know, thinking that Armageddon's around the corner. And for me, the biggest fear was uh, the fear of blood guilt. So that's a lovely little concept that I... Um, yeah so this is a concept taken straight out of the old testament where if you are responsible for somebody else's death a bit like manslaughter i suppose in in the ancient um israelite law covenant you would be blood guilty and um so you know even though it was an accident you'd still be the person that would basically have to pay for the uh the death of this person in one way or another mm-hmm. um and so that principle was applied to us. So if we didn't uh, do the preaching work and we didn't give people a good witness and we didn't give people the opportunity to become a Jehovah's Witness so they wouldn't die at Armageddon, we could see ourselves as blood guilty or God might see us as blood guilty. Mm-hmm. So that meant that, you know, even at school by being naughty, you know, let's say I was a bad boy at school and I'd done something wrong and the teacher knew and she knew I was a Jehovah's Witness. What would happen if the next time somebody knocked on her door? Oh, well, Stephen's a, um, Stephen Mather is a youngster at my school. He's terribly bad, badly behaved. Um, and that might stop them becoming a Jehovah's Witness. This is a paranoia that a young child should not be... Um, <laughs> these are weights that a child shouldn't, shouldn't have on their shoulders. It's it's silly, but um, it's as a child, you know, you sort of. Um, I was a very, I was literal. So I, if if they told me that, I just believed it. You know, I thought, well, right. that's that Understood. must be the right way. So um, fear was very much part of my upbringing, and then that never really leaves you. So I was always anxious about one thing or another. You're listening to the Frankie Files, FrankieFilesPodcast.com. Um, when I left, I remember this is a, a very strong memory I have, and I still remember the house where I lived at the time. Um, I took a walk and I looked. This is when I realized I, I'd said it. I'd said that I was no longer going to be going to the meetings and so on. And I looked up at the sky. The sky was the bluest of blues. I'd never seen it so blue. The, the trees <laughs> were green in a way that I'd not seen before. It was like I a huge great weight had been lifted from my shoulders and to mix a metaphor, you know, the fog yeah. had been cleared from my eyes as well. It was just fabulous. Um, so no, I didn't experience that. I know some, some people do, uh, you know, I have a friend that talked about, he had nightmares about Armageddon and all that, but I never did. I was just happy to be out and I didn't believe it. It had always been there that my my analysis of the truthfulness of these doctrines mm-hmm. um uh, were, were obviously always there but i i was following the party line and that uh, part of me was responding to that 
logic mm-hmm. you know if i don't do this oh, yeah. then i'm going to die at home again um i, I mean and again we talked about this on our podcast about the end of the world you know there are other threats to the to the world that don't include god destroying everybody um mm-hmm. and some of those are real so mm-hmm. um I, I don't think it means we suddenly live in a a cloud cuckoo land um you know there are political upheavals and there are incredibly powerful weapons and there's climate change and there's things that could you know could happen but um at least now as i'm no longer a jehovah's witness i even even though i'm a small voice like you and like everybody else we can contribute to the conversation whereas a jehovah's witness you can have nothing to do with politics. You can't right. vote. You can't have anything to do with the world. Yeah. So I, I know one thing that some people don't understand, which is that cult kids are extremely adaptable. We had to learn a whole other belief system mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. thinking to get out and to survive and to function. So kudos. You know, it's it's like anything in life that is um, – is a horrible experience or a difficult experience. You take things from it and you use it, you know, and I think we've done that. I try to do that, but given the choice, would I prefer not to have that experience? Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey, Stephen, that's not a choice. I tried that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no full reversal. The United States doesn't seem to care much about coercion, but I'm applauding the UK the laws are starting to actually take notice about coercion um, in multiple areas, not just in churches. So these coercion laws, you know, I'm wondering if you'd been following that. So there's been quite a bit of, of, I'm just like really impressed that the United Kingdom is paying attention and trying to put something in place. Do you have anything on that, a statement on that for us? Yeah, um, so my understanding of the coercive control legislation is that um, fairly recently, uh, and by recently I mean within the last sort of 10 years, we've had legislation around um, or making coercive control an offence, but within relationships. So this this covers covers, um, coercive relationships where um a man not always the man but obviously more often than not is is the mm-hmm. man might coercively coercively control their partner mm-hmm. um and that could be but it doesn't have to be physical so it can be mental as well as physical coercion um so this these are this is a very good thing i think is a very progressive progressive thing but yeah. it doesn't cover organizations so it's currently as it stands as far as i understand it and i'm not obviously i'm not a lawyer um or a legal expert but as far as i understand it it doesn't cover the sorts of bad behavior in cults or religions that we're seeing and we're talking about here however um it it has created a framework of coercive control and it is certainly something that i know various organizations who advocate for um, survivors of these groups you know want to legislature to look at so yeah i think um we're certainly not where we need to be but the idea that coercive control even without physical violence um is is something that we want to stop within our communities i think that's a good sign we just now need to to 
make it apply to other situations. A lot of the a lot of the issues, a lot of the challenges I think we have when trying to challenge cults and cultic practices is the understandable fear of stopping minority groups from having freedom of religion or freedom mm-hmm. of belief. So mm-hmm. and that of course cults play on that. They they cry foul on that at any opportunity you know so we have to find a way of helping society and the lawmakers understand uh, what we're talking about you know we're not talking here about just general fallouts within families or fallouts between people who have the same religion we are talking about practices that are um, processes and policies that are mandated by these organizations that create these coercive relationships and they're the things that we need to target you know we have no problem with people believing whatever they want to believe but individuals also have the right to leave these religious groups without fear um, of losing their entire um, social structure Um, and the problem currently is that the the mandated nature of things like shunning and um, um, uh, as a coercive tool. So it, you know we we have to think about how we we're careful about what we're, we're proposing. Um, but yeah, these cults will always cry persecution. You know, it's one of the favourite things. Uh, slippery slope, and with freedom of religion in place in the United States, yeah. This is what they use to continually say, well, we can't do anything about it. So there's something got to change. Something's got to change. I'm no expert in this area, but but my view is we need to um, just need to keep on explaining over and over again that we are absolutely pro people's rights to believe mm-hmm. um we, we're not i don't want to stop jehovah's witnesses existing right. i don't want to stop any of these groups existing mm-hmm. um it's some of the practices that are harmful and coercive yes those there needs to be some sort of downside to behaving that way right. so even in the first instance it's taking their charitable status away from them would be my my first step. So if an organization is getting tax breaks from the government, which essentially means that taxpayers are helping pay for these groups, if that's happening, then they shouldn't be allowed to practice things like shunning, for instance. Right. Um, th- this has the, the ridiculous situation where an individual might be, what well, in Jehovah's Witnesses' terms, it's called disfellowshipped, which basically means that any Jehovah's Witnesses cannot can no longer have anything to do with that individual an announcement is given from the platform to say this person is no longer a jehovah's witness and mm-hmm. everybody knows what that means and that can be because they've slept with somebody without being married or it could even mean having a cigarette um these no th- this person that is now disfellowshipped yeah smoking um or joining a political party even uh joining the army anything like that um, the person will be considered no longer to be a Jehovah's Witness and they will be shunned by everybody else that knows them, by their their family, by their friends. Well, that person is a taxpayer. So their taxpaying money helps fund the very organization that is creating this shunning situation yes. for them. That's yeah. got to be wrong. That's yeah. got to be wrong. 
Okay, well, we've really enjoyed having you. Um, This has been a long and wonderful conversation. And I wanted to see if we could get some final thoughts on um, your podcast, what you want to accomplish. Um, You're in year two. What have you covered? What do people expect you to cover? And where can we find it? Okay, Um, so the the podcast is called Cult Hackers. And... um, we we release a new podcast every Saturday, um, and that's that alternates between one episode where it's just me and Celine exploring a topic. So uh, we might be exploring like the end of the world, like we're talking about, or it could be uh, the women and their experience. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that together. Um, so Celine is, um, she's now, you know, I talked about her as a child, but she's now 26 um, and uh, a graduate, a media graduate. So she's got a lot of thoughts around the way mm-hmm. that cults affect our society. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're also very much interested in film and uh, and stuff like that. So we talk about some of that as well in relation to cults. So we do that every other Saturday. And then the Saturdays in between, we will interview a guest. That's the way we normally do it. So we mm-hmm. interview a guest. And that could be um, an ex-member of a group like yourself. Um, so there's there's an interview um, or it might be an academic. So we've interviewed a number of different researchers or academics. And then in between on a Wednesday, um, we might do a bonus episode. And those bonuses tend to be a bit eclectic. So that's just me doing a, a, a scripted podcast. So the Star Wars one. Um, is an example of that so that's a scripted podcast where i'll just explore a film and uh give it a cult reading essentially um and uh, so sometimes it's that other times it will be a a guest that we're talking about something a bit vague a bit different um so we try to keep it quite different and eclectic and yeah cult hackers yeah so cults are everywhere in a way so we want to sort mm-hmm. of try and understand them from all angles, I suppose. Great. If there's nothing else, Stephen, uh, this has been my pleasure to have you on Frankie Files podcast. I just want to say thank you very much for having me on. I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, yeah thank you for the opportunity. If you would like information on Colts in the News, please join my new Substack, frankietees.substack.com.